Hello. When we started this podcast, we promised you, our listeners, not only debates involving young people and the stories that matter to them, but interviews with some of the people currently influencing politics and the media too. On today's episode... That was Lewis Goodall and joining us now... We speak to Lewis Goodall. Lewis is one of the UK's most talented and well-known political journalists, who currently serves as BBC Newsnight's policy editor. Lewis has been reporting on politics for around a decade. A decade in which political life in this country has been utterly unpredictable, fascinating and at times unnerving for many. This is the first coalition government in Britain for 65 years. Because it's very important that the Libyan people determine their own future. They met with a bunch of migrants in Calais, they said they could all come to Britain. The only people they never stand up for are the British people and hard-working Scotland, in response to the referendum question, should Scotland be an independent country, we're in favour of no. And we are projecting that David Cameron will make it by a majority of two, three hundred. If we take back control... If we take back control on June the 23rd, we can also... The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. In a candid interview with the BBC, Theresa May has said she shed a little tear on hearing of the exit poll on election night. My behalf, confirming the government's decision to invoke Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union. Boris Johnson is set to walk in this door behind me tomorrow as Britain's next Prime Minister. To get Brexit done and we will honour that mandate. From tonight, you can only leave your home for very specific reasons. Unfortunately, due to logistical reasons, Eve was unable to join us on this episode. So this edition of the podcast is a conversation between Lewis and myself about his personal highlights from his time as a journalist, the moments that stand above all the others in terms of setting his heart racing, as well as having a broader conversation about where our politics has been, where it's going, and the role of the media in all of that, including the BBC. I'm Ollie Lewis, and welcome to another episode of the Meridian Podcast. And Lewis joins me now from New Broadcasting House. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Um, Are you well? I'm very well. How could I not be well? The sun is shining. It's late September. We're about to embark on party conference season. What, what, what could be better? The dream of all political journalists everywhere. Party yeah, conference well, season. Well, of course. We didn't have them last year, so uh, there you go. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Lewis, people might know you from a number of different places if they're you know, keen followers of news and politics, or indeed if they're not, actually. Um, where might people know you from? Um, give us a sort of whistle-stop tour of your career in journalism so far and, of course, where you are at the moment. Uh, well, so um, uh, I started uh, sort of journalism proper. Well, I mean, I was at the BBC for a while before that, but where I sort of came, where I started reporting on air uh, was uh, at Sky News, which I started in uh, 2016. Uh, you know, of course, nothing very eventful happened at that time. Uh, so in 2016, and I was there for about three years or so, and then I joined the BBC. Uh, I was political correspondent there, and I joined the BBC, uh, BBC Newsnight specifically as a policy editor in January 2020. Again, nothing particularly eventful around that time either. So uh, yeah, it's been a sort of uh, obviously. I mean, obviously, I you know, people like me, I suspect people like you, always very interested in news, interested in politics. Obviously, it has been you know, since 2016, arguably since 2014 anyway, you know, a remarkably uh, frenetic period for British politics, but also politics more widely around the world. 
Um, and so probably if you're interested in British politics and politics more widely than you may have across me that way, but also on Twitter and places like that. Absolutely. And I, I want to get onto all of those things you just mentioned, you know, the ridiculous, tumultuous time that we've lived through in so many respects um, in the last few years. But you, you said that you'd always been interested in news. So did you have a sort of political childhood or a, a, a news based childhood? Did you discuss the news around the kitchen table or, or what? Well, only because I wanted to, to be honest. I think my parents right. have been having, a bit bubbly. I, mean, I was just trying to sort of like extract answers from them about various things that they thought. And I was like, Lewis, I haven't really thought about it, you know. But I mean, no, the answer, the short answer is no. I did not have a particularly, had did not have a political childhood, except in the sense that I made it political by being sort of obsessed with politics and by sort of constantly sort of attacking my parents and family with sort of political questions. My granddad who's not with us now, unfortunately, but my granddad was more political. He was more interested in politics. He was the one who probably sort of uh, whetted my appetite. We talked about many, many things um, at his shop, uh, summer after summer, you know, politics, historical events, all those sort of things. But in a sort of party political sense or in a kind of big P political sense, no, they were sort of very sort of ordinary in that regard. We would sort of talk about politics a little bit and there were lots of politics going on in my life. I mean, I think one of the first things that got me interested in politics was, you know, my dad, uh, was a was is a welder, but was a welder at that time uh, at the Longbridge plant in Birmingham. Um, and you know, a, a sort of constant sort of set of punctuation marks throughout my childhood was the question of whether this factory on which we depended on our living, you know, was going to close. And I remember being completely fascinated and transfixed in many ways by the idea of so why was it going to close and what was going to cause its closure. And occasionally you'd have the sort of TV news cameras come down and sort of situate themselves near where we lived. And that sort of sense of, and sometimes people would say things like, oh, it's because the Chinese have bought it. Now they want to close it. And I remember being sort of utterly captivated by the idea or fascinated by the idea of, you know, suddenly these decisions being made but in China, a country that certainly no one in Longridge, I think, probably had ever visited, much less the language that they've spoken of and so on could be making those decisions that was going to literally affect my family's life and the family of our entire community. And of course, that is, it's not party political, but all of those questions are deeply political. And so in that sense, I think we all live politics, whether we realise it or not. At various points in my childhood, um, we live politics in a big way. And um, as that sort of last gasp of deindustrialization, I suppose, but it's a bit out of time. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of infused with an already deep interest in matters political for me, I think. Yeah, so so a number of things led you to sort of have that political interest, you know, your grandfather, things that are going around and going on in your life. So you had that spark. It's like hey, sometimes people have got an interest in whatever it is, whether it's dancing or sport or whatever. Sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. You just have it. It's like a it's like a bug. Margaret Thatcher once said about politics. Margaret Thatcher once said about politics, you know, it's it's something that it is a bug. If it bites you, you can't get it out of your bloodstream. I don't think I haven't I don't think I, there's been a day I haven't thought about politics, probably since I was about 11 years old. That's really sad and pathetic in a lot of ways. But I can't, you know, I can't quite imagine my life without it. And, and in a way, that's what's good about my job is that my sort of hobby has become my career. So I'm fortunate now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if that's sad and pathetic, then I'm, I'm joining you. Don't you worry, you're not alone. Um, so as you say, <laughs> it became your career. But how did you get there? Because this podcast, we have a, we're really proud to have a number of listeners who are sort of young journalists, um, people trying to break into the industry whether it be print or broadcast how did you get there how did you go from this sort of interest to as you just said it became your career um so uh i think i always knew that i wanted to i think do something political one way or another or in which politics was involved um uh i was obviously very i mean i studied from politics university i was very interested in uh i sort of left university and you know i left the university in um 
the summer of 2010, which, um, you know, at the time, although perhaps not by comparison to now, felt like an extremely dark period economically. It was a dark period economically. There were very few jobs around, and it was, you know, the start of a real sort of... Uh, a real sort of nadir, I suppose, for kind of young people, which has sustained really economically ever since. Um, but, uh, and so I went through a few months of leaving university, not really having anything to do. Uh, and I actually ended up, uh, partly again, because my granddad found me the job, God bless him, but I ended up going to work on University Challenge of all places, at ITV Granada, as it then was. And I sort of worked as a uh, question setter and researcher, which is great because I had a lot of sort of completely superfluous and pointless knowledge from my finals that I hadn't managed to use my exam. So I just managed to sort of translate them into... <laughs> questions but it's a great job i really enjoyed it and and you know i enjoyed also working in television i realized i really liked to actually working in in television i then sort of had this idea though i had this sort of again sense that maybe i wanted to work in politics directly and so i got a job i had this idea that maybe i'd be a bit like david miliband and go and work for a think tank and then you know see what happens from there but I, and i did i went to work uh, at the institute for public policy research which you know your listeners will probably know as a sort of uh, always described as a center-left think tank uh, you know um uh, and I hated it. I really hated it. It was nothing to do with them. I mean, it was a nice place to work and it was a very worthy place to work and they do great work. They still do great work. But I just realized that it wasn't for me in a sense that my sort of attention span was not long enough or strong enough to work on one thing in an office for like 12 months or 18 months. I just couldn't do it. No disrespect to when I've got, in fact, I've got huge respect for people who do. But I just realized it wasn't for me. And I would say that as an aside, actually, in terms of like young journalists or people listening to this who, who are a bit sort of worried that maybe they've ended up doing the wrong thing or worried about doing the wrong thing. Sometimes it's not a bad thing to do the wrong thing. It's not the wrong thing. It's just telling you what you don't want to do. I realized from then on that I couldn't do that sort of job. I just didn't have the mind for it or I didn't have the kind of constitution. For it. So then I started to think, well, I really like working on TV. I really like politics. I'd always thought I'd quite like to be a journalist. I didn't think I ever wanted to be a newspaper journalist for various reasons. Um, but I was very interested in broadcasting. And so then I applied for what was then a freelance position uh, at the BBC as a sort of political researcher. They were trying to sort of get more people who were interested in politics or had strong political knowledge to go and work on a freelance basis. They were only assuring you sort of six weeks work. And I applied for that and got that. And then I, it was six weeks, but then it became sort of a month, two months, three months, ended up becoming a sort of uh, economics researcher for the BBC and their sort of analysis department ended up going to work on Newsnight as a producer political producer uh, and then I was really desperate I knew though I really wanted to be a reporter not a producer quite difficult to do it sort of takes quite a long time but eventually with enough sort of tenacity uh, I managed to get a job as I said at Sky News as a, 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 a political correspondent and then I returned as I say to Newsnight where I've been a producer for a while um, as a policy editor so and that brings me up to literally today mm, wonderful yeah I know I know a lot of people listening to that you know, me people similar similar age of me of mine will find that very um encouraging especially a bit about you know having a lot of leftover knowledge after university and being able to yeah. put that for that to use somewhere um okay so so returning to politics and i guess where you started um started this chat this has been a hugely turbulent time the last 10 years but in particular the last five years in the uk and you you've specialized in uk politics throughout that whole time has there been sort of one maybe two moments events period of a few weeks in which you thought this is utterly bonkers and this is incredibly exciting and you know what this is why i'm doing it i is there one particular time that you just thought this is the best job in the world because this is just crazy 
Well, I mean, I suppose we'll do every week, really. Uh, I mean, certainly since sort of season. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it depends what you mean. So um, I think probably my favourite time, and some people probably find this surprising in a way, because in some ways it was sort of obviously deeply destabilising time. My favourite time was probably 2019, in the sense that what happened in 2019, pretty much from the start of 2019, exactly to the end of 2019, was this series, if you remember, of course, there was this whole suit, May had got her deal, and before that, it had been a little tedious, because there was a constant kind of, will she get the deal, when's she going to get the deal, you know, back and forth to Brussels the whole time, which is sort of exciting in a way, and obviously her government by then was very weak, and so there was lots of, you know, excitement in various quarters. Uh, various points anyway, but the 2019 period, pretty much from when she first put the first meaningful vote, right through to the second and the third, and her resignation, and Johnson coming in, everything that was going on with Corbyn, and right to the general election, the New Deal, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, I was in the, um, I was in Parliament as a lobby correspondent for, you know, all of that time, there on night after night of those votes, and it was utterly, completely, overwhelmingly exciting. You know, because you never knew what was going to happen next, literally from sort of minute to minute. And to be in the chamber, this is a place that I have been fascinated by ever since I was a child. Um, to be in that chamber on those genuinely historic moments, you know, when the votes were called out, to hear the speeches, to see the speeches, to sort of watch, I don't know if some of you listeners will have been in the chamber, you know, to see it as you don't see it on television, watching the different MPs, how they're reacting to each other, how May is reacting on the numbers, all, that, all of it was utterly, completely captivating. And then getting to go on television and talk about it, I mean, you know, and to try and drive it forward by breaking stories around it, talking to MPs, utterly, someone who sort of lives and breathes this stuff. This is a kind of, I used to think, you know, how amazing it must have been in the late 70s to be around with the Jim Callaghan government and the night it fell and the kind of difficult, all those late parliamentary votes. I kind of got to live some of that, a lot of that, in 2019. So that was, you know, tremendously, tremendously exciting and almost unprecedented every single day. And I think in a way, although what's happened since, you know, in terms of COVID and covering COVID, that has been a completely different tenor because uh, both were important. But as I sort of realised, we reflecting back on it, is that, Brexit was really important, and it felt very like there was a little jeopardy to it at the time. And there was, obviously. But in a way, the jeopardy was completely artificial, because the real jeopardy was around the clock. You know, would we end up leaving without a deal? And what happened was clearly, but that clock was totally within our control, as Parliament showed each time. And on Sky at the time, you know, we had the clock ticking down, ticking down. We had to put it up sometimes when they extended it. I mean, it was kind of absurd. But what I kind of realised in many ways, looking back, that whole, the whole Brexit period was high drama, low jeopardy. And, the, and as a journalist, that's great, because it doesn't feel, although it did feel existential, a bit dangerous sometimes, particularly being, you know, um, it felt disturbing what was happening to British democracy in a lot of ways, mm. in terms of the people losing faith in it and so on. It nonetheless, you know, it had a lot of excitement to it. What's happened with COVID sometimes has been exciting, but more often than not has been uh, high jeopardy, low drama. You know, the events have had a sort of similar theme. We go lockdown, we come out of lockdown, we go back into lockdown. And, so and obviously it's also been a sort of very dispiriting in lots of different ways. So it's been a very, it's a very big contrast to 2019. And, you know, it's sort of a very different sort of set of challenges. I realised the last bit wasn't necessarily entirely the question you asked, but I thought I would add it in anyway, just as a sort of, uh, as a sort oh, of point no, no. of comparison. Yeah, no, I'm actually exactly the same. 2019 was so I was doing my politics A-level at the time and sort of every day we'd walk into the classroom and think, oh my God, like 
like it was sort of a competition to find out who knew the latest piece of information because it would have happened 10 minutes before class and, started. And, and, what a time, and what time to be doing it? I mean, I remember when I mean, you're making me feel really ancient now, but when I did my, when I did my politics A-level, which I was tremendously excited about because I couldn't believe it as this little geek that like, I can't believe I'm actually studying politics and that's part of my school day. But like, you know, I think in a way, you know, when I was studying, they're doing that. So that'd been like 2005, 2006, 2007. The great kind of complaint about politics and the great thing that, that sort of people used to sort of say about it was, what's the point? It's so boring, you know, it's so boring because, you know, there's so little difference between Labour and the Conservatives. I don't think that's true, by the way, but I mean, you know, that's what people said, you know, the sort of the great ideological debates are over, you know, uh, you know, Blair and Labour are so hegemonic, they're going to be in government forever. <laughs> to imagine that. But, you know, that was the kind of, that was the kind of root kind of analysis of what people said about it. And it was sometimes, even though I was obsessed with it, it was kind of difficult sometimes to overcome that. I think in some ways, I mean, although obviously the last few years has been disturbing in some ways, and in some ways, you know, it's been a very divisive time. At the very least, what you can say, it has been a time when ideas have been on the table in a really important way, and the importance of democracy and politics itself. I don't think anyone can turn around now and say, you know, incredibly, or oh, politics doesn't matter, politics doesn't make any difference. Look what's happening today as we're speaking in terms of the fuel problems or the problems on the shelves or whatever. That is all there is a result, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it's all the result of politics, of political decisions, of changes that have been made. I don't think anyone could have can say anymore that politics is kind of immaterial or irrelevant in a way that people did you know, very regularly when I was studying politics. I completely agree. And, and what fascinated me was after the 2019 general election, that narrative came back saying, oh, Boris Johnson's got an 80 seat majority or around 80 seat majority. Um, you know, politics is going to go back to being boring. Nothing's going to ever be contested in this coming five years. But this and... is what I mean. This is what I love about politics, right? Is that you cannot, you cannot. I mean, in a way, it's kind of disturbing for people like me because someone like me spends my whole time trying to make sense of politics and find narratives for politics to help people understand it. But in some ways, it is impossible to analyze because it is so unpredictable and that's become a bit of a cliche and i kind of hate it when journalists say i'm not going to make predictions because it's also unpredictable it's a bit <laughs> tedious but but on one more fundamental level it is true, true i mean like you know look as you just said i mean you know people in 2020 were like oh politics is over now johnson's going to be in, it's going to be stable it's going to be this i mean you could not make it up that literally the month we you know we get to tw- the end of 2019 we have a general election the Brexit kind of chapter, it doesn't close, but in a way, it sort of closes. We leave on the 30th of January. Electric. And literally on that day, the 30th of January, Britain gets its first COVID case. You could not make that up. You know, if you submitted that, to get, it's kind of like a sort of chapter heads. You know, you couldn't make it up. And then everything changes. You know, it, it is, you can't fail to be stimulated by it because it is so completely and utterly bewildering and stimulating. That's, I didn't realise the first case was on that day. That is, that is phenomenal. That's sort of something out of Doctor Who or something. <laughs> um, so you mentioned Brexit, and of course something that has happened not um, exclusively as a result of Brexit, and it's happened on all sides of the political debate, but something that has happened since 2016, both in the con- this country and around the world, is a sort of um, a hyping up of the of the tension in the political debate, let's say, um, an increase in abuse, abuse of journalists, abuse of um, elected representatives. Of course, a lot of that abuse when it comes to journalists is experienced by women in this country. Um, your colleague at the BBC, Laura Koonsberg, experiences a, a huge um, volume of online bile. Your former colleague at Sky, Beth Rigby, um, experiences a similar a similar thing. What's your experience of it? Do, have, you, have you had much of that in the last few years? I mean, yeah, you do, you do. Um... Uh, I mean, 
and um, it's something you have to inure yourself to. Um, uh, I think there's a few things to say about that. I mean, I think one, I think, well, first of all, I think that we shouldn't, as journalists, ever be afraid to be criticised. You know, people have an absolute right to criticise us. They have an absolute right to bring forward their views. One of the things I like most about social media and Twitter and so on is that, you know, it does allow people, I mean, back in the day, I can't quite imagine what it must have been like, you know, so say doing my job, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, one could put your piece out on TV and literally you wouldn't hear it. You know, you might ask your, 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 you know, your husband or your wife what they thought or someone might sort of, you know, you might get a letter seven days later telling you what someone thought, but actually the feedback beyond your immediate circle would be, unless something went really wrong or it was so brilliant, would be, you know, very muted. Now, I mean, I can put something out, I can put it on television and literally I can get off the set and within seconds I've got someone telling me that, you know, it was great or, you know, you were talking too fast, which I did get quite a lot, uh, or you were, you know, or you're Tyra Skewiff or I think you were talking complete nonsense, what you want about, uh, you left-wing shill, you right-wing shill, you, you know, libertarian, capitalist, socialist, communist, you know, like, I mean, you get the entire, the entire, you get it the entire breadth of, of analysis. So, you know, and I welcome that in some ways. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid of, and sometimes it's useful because you say to yourself, actually, you know what, you're right. I think I hadn't thought about that or, you know, I put a bit too much emphasis on that, whatever, and that's 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 helpful. So I think we should be totally open to that. Obviously, where it crosses a line, there's two ways it can cross a line. One is there are just some people who dislike you. They hate the media. They are caustic about the media. They have corrosive views about the media. They have this very unfortunate view that basically everyone is out to get them the whole time, uh, and everyone else is out to lie to them the whole time, including the media, which is, you know, not my experience. It's not true. Um, and there's not a lot you can kind of say to those people, particularly online. If you get to talk to them in person, it's a bit easy. You know, so I was out and about, and someone comes up to me and says, oh, you, you lie, you lie. And the rest of you, you know, the media lies. I said, well, you know, so could you just give me an example? And like, I don't, and then just, you could see the, the cogs sort of whirring and they, they couldn't think of one. They just couldn't think of one. But it was just a sort of, as I say, a caustic cynicism. Um, and we probably don't have time to think about where that comes from. But, it, you know, I think what you just have to realise is, is there's not a lot you can do to change that as an individual, apart from just doing your best and being the best journalist you can be. I think the other way that clearly it could step over where, is it, where it becomes just sort of, which is sort of linked to that. It can be linked to that, which is, you know, just a kind of vile abuse. Uh, I don't get it, to be honest, or I don't that much, but I suppose I'm a, you know, white man, sort of quite difficult to to kind of um, fight. It, it, it doesn't happen to me nearly as much as one can see with female colleagues or uh, ethnic minority colleagues, uh, which is, you know, I think much more very, very disturbing. And, you know, they shouldn't have to put up with that. Um, but as I say, personally, I sort of take an attitude a open criticism as long as it's respectful and decent uh, and I welcome that uh, and B as regards to the rest I think you just have to sort of put your tin hat on and, uh, and, and just try and do your best to rise above it and just as long as you can say to yourself I'm being fair I'm doing the things that I know I should be doing I'm trying to be the best journalist I can be yes I'll make mistakes acknowledge them move on but for the rest of it you know well on a more positive note you are I would say a prolific user of Twitter. And I mean that in absolutely the best way possible. You're a fantastic user of Twitter. You have over 230,000 followers and you regularly make Ian Dale, who is another broadcaster's uh, top tweeters of the year. Um, could you do your job without Twitter? Could I do my job? Um, so I don't think so. Uh, or at least well, I could, but I think uh, for lots of reasons, it would be a worse job or I would do uh, the, the job that I would do would be worse. And I would say that for a number of reasons. First of all, um, 
Twitter itself has become, and sometimes some journalists don't like this and some organizations don't like this, but whether we like it or not, it has become itself an arena of news. It is where news happens. It is where corporations or presidents or prime ministers or governments or MPs or whoever it is say what they're going to do, say what they think, where they resign, where they you know, make comments about great issues of the day, where they argue with each other. We were just talking about the 2019 election. Think how many times MPs were having ding-dongs about various things on Twitter. Sometimes that itself was news. So at the very least, if one is not an active participant in the media, one has to be part of it in the sense of monitoring it and looking at it and being part of you know, uh, being part of your day-to-day. There's just no way about that. If you didn't do that, you just wouldn't know what was going on, quite frankly. As regards the rest, of, and then in terms of being a sort of more active user, well, first of all, I'm someone who thinks that, you know, I want my journalism to be consumed by as many people as possible. There is no point to journalism if it just sits on an empty shelf like a museum piece. It needs to be consumed. It demands to be consumed. I want it to be put out there in as many ways as possible. And that might be mean that the journalism is, takes a slightly different form in different places. So it might be, you know, most people will not sit and watch one of my sort of seven-minute pieces on Newsnight on Twitter, but they might read a Twitter thread about it or they might read a couple of tweets about it. And, you know, if they're interested in that, will be pointed to the piece itself. I also have a huge number of people, if I'm covering a story, come to me with stories on Twitter. You know, I'm not someone, generally speaking, to who spends who enjoys spending loads and loads of time, you know, in Westminster's bars and whatever, you know, trying to sort of, trying to get stories from, you know, spads or whatever by, you know, giving them as many drinks as possible. Nothing's wrong with that as a form of journalism. It just doesn't really tickle me that much. What I do enjoy is actually, and what I really value is, and is really, really helpful is, is if I'm covering something on, say, I don't know, schools or care homes during COVID or whatever it is, you know, I can get so many people coming to me, telling me, what's really happening in their industry, what's really happening in their business, or what's really happening in their day-to-day lives. You know, it gives you access to so many, I'm not just talking about Twitter here, but social media generally, but Twitter is particularly useful because people on it tend to be interested in news. It gives you so much access to so many people's lived experience, and they can come to you anonymously, they can come to you, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've, um, you know, that I've managed to get stories or learn something that I've then been able to pass on or added to my understanding as a result. So I think it is an invaluable uh, tool. One has to be careful and judicious about what how one uses it, of course, because you're not just representing yourself, you're representing the organisation you work for. But I do think it is invaluable. Yes. Mm, and it's wonderful to hear, you know, social media talked about in a nice way for once. And it's, it's great to see the way you use it and the way you use it often. Um, well, not often, but but when the time comes around is around election time and, you know, shining light on specific results and uh, specific races, which I absolutely uh, lap up, I must say. Now, obviously, you do you do um, a, a lot of coverage, as people would expect, of UK and US elections, because that is sort of the diet that we're fed politically in this country. But I always find myself wishing that we had more coverage of other foreign elections um, other than the US. So we've got a German g- general election this Sunday, and I've really had to sort of dig to find some proper in-depth quality and analysis in English, that is. Um, and so I imagine you, I, I was going to ask, you know, do, do you wish that we, we had more coverage of foreign elections on, on UK broadcast media? I assume the answer is yes. And therefore, I guess the question from that then is, why do you think that's not the case? And do you think it's just because there isn't that much of an appetite for it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I like you. I mean, I suppose in a way I have to kind of check myself a bit because, of course, you know, uh, of 
course, I would love to have as many election sort of programs as possible. I mean, I'd watch the kind of Faroe Islands elections probably if I had. To. <laughs> um, so, so I suppose one has to kind of, you know, uh, have a bit of a check on oneself to say, well, you know, not everyone's quite, you know, quite as interested as you are. But yes, I think that, and I think there is perhaps more of a realization of this, particularly with what's happened with the EU. I think the Brexit process has probably reminded us just how interwoven we are with the rest of Europe, but how much the EU and the decisions of the major EU governments do affect our lives, often perhaps a bit more sometimes, certainly in some regards, than the American elections, uh, for example. So um, I think the answer is yes. I think there are moves to sort of do that a little bit. I think that actually Twitter is, this is another example, I think, where Twitter does come into its own because, you know, I mean, I'm someone who you know, loves election programs. I was lucky enough on Sky to, to you know, do several election programs. Um, the same thing at the BBC. I've done election, you know, take part in election coverage, um, and and I love it. it it's inter- and I've you know watched kind of every general election night coverage from the BBC on YouTube from you know pretty much the fifties on. Okay, it's all it's all going my house. I can tell you. Um, but 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 in a way, I mean, and, and those programs will always be invaluable in many ways. Many ways, they're my sort of one of my first loves loves really in political uh, broadcasting journalism. But in a way, Twitter has kind of let's say superseded it, but it's certainly become a big complementary thing. I mean, you know, because it is so fast, because it's real time, and results again are, are put out, and you can actually get to a level of sophology for those really interested that you might not be able to get to on television, just you know, for obvious reasons then actually, you know, it really helps, does augment our understanding, not only of kind of British elections when they come, or by-elections, whatever it is, or American elections, but also elections around the world. So, you know, I'll be, you know, whatever election it is, uh, whether I'm sort of tweeting about it myself, and I do try and get as au fait with as many kind of elections and kind of what's going on in different political systems as I can be, but also obviously following others who are more more um, plugged in than I am. So um, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a Twitter in that respect, again, I think is a good thing. Mm. And of course, one of the key principles um, that you as a BBC or as a British broadcast, I guess, um, more widely, journalists have to abide by, especially at election time, but always, is due impartiality. Um, the BBC is obliged to, to represent all views in a debate and report objectively, of course. Um, now, obviously, I'm not going to drag you onto any territory that would get you into trouble or that you would might feel uncomfortable as um, as a BBC journalist. However, a lot of former BBC employees have come out after their careers at the BBC and said that something occasionally doesn't quite work with the model of due impartiality. Um, I'm thinking of people like John Humphreys, who, of course, presented the Today programme for a very long time. Gavin Esler, who's... Um, a, a well-known Remainer, he joined, of course, Change UK, um, said said something similar. Have you ever struggled with it? Have you ever, as you said earlier, you said that sometimes people say, no, you should have focused more on this rather than that. Have you ever, after doing a report or an article, thought, actually, we shouldn't be focusing on that. We should have been focusing on that. Have you ever felt bound by it in a way that you would rather not? Well, I suppose there are slightly two different questions there, aren't there? I mean, have I ever felt that we've sort of had the emphasis wrong about something generally or focused on something incorrectly with hindsight? And the answer is yes, of course. And if, if we didn't if we didn't think that we're doing our jobs properly, that's just part of the kind of just inevitable frailties of, of us as, as humans making mistakes, but also sometimes events supersede it. And, and it turns out that, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of I remember during the 2015 general election, um, you know, so much of the media emphasis at the time was about the horse race, was about, oh, you know, Labour's is Labour going to do a deal with the SNP? Will the Conservatives do a deal with the DUP? Whatever. I mean, basically, almost the whole campaign was consumed by it because everyone said there's going to be a hung parliament, it's a virtual certainty. Of course, it wasn't. 
Conservatives won, that what there wasn't was any sort of discussion about the European Union, about having a referendum. The thing which would dominate our politics for the rest of for that parliament, but also beyond. Was that clearly a mistake on behalf of the media? Yeah, yeah, it really was. I think it's un- indisputable. But that's obviously a slightly separate question from impartiality and about sort of, I suppose what you're saying is, do I feel constrained by the by the requirements of due impartiality? And the answer is that is no. And I say that because actually in some ways, um, you know, I think the impartiality or the doctrine of impartiality is a very, can, you know, should be a very liberating one. In the sense that, what does impartiality mean? Well, impartiality fundamentally means, and what it should mean, is that what is at its centre is the truth. You know, we as journalists—I mean, all journalists should be concerned with this, of course—but particularly, obviously, because of the way that broadcast media is regulated, we must only be concerned with the truth. And the idea that that is our job. Our job is to find the truth and say what the truth is. Now, I think sometimes where this conversation gets a bit bogged down, sometimes is the idea that the truth and our impartiality is the same thing as balance. That is not the case. You know, I'm not very interested in, you know, it is not the case that we should have to, that every argument will be a case of, well, it's on the one hand this and the other hand that. That isn't what the BBC does. It's not what it should be about. It's not what journalism should be about. Sometimes it will be the case that, you know, the answer isn't very clear, that the, the truth is a bit nuanced, that it's a bit mushy. Sometimes it won't be. Sometimes the truth will be the truth, which will be the truth. And as long as a journalist bound by those uh, guidelines, can say, well, this is what the truth is, and these are my, and it's not just because I think it, because it's my opinion, this is why, because this is the truth, this is the evidence for it, and that's absolutely fine. I think it's a, it is a liberating doctrine, because it concerns us, as I say, only with the truth, and that is what people turn to journalists for. They want to know what the truth is, what the actual facts of the matter are. What they don't want is a sort of slightly kind of, uh, rel- you know, relativist kind of take the whole time which is to say, you know, well, maybe it's a bit of this, maybe it's a bit of that. Sometimes that might be required if that's the case. But, you know, we have confidence and should have confidence to say what the truth is when the truth is that. And I think, you know, more often than not, I think that's what we do. Sure, but a lot of the criticism comes from an occasional perceived confusion between the two, between impartiality and balance. Because on occasion, what's happened in the past is the BBC have put forward either a panel or, you know, a debate between two individuals, one of which has a breadth of experience and a breadth of knowledge about a particular subject, and the other who doesn't have that experience or that knowledge. And just because they have opposing views, that is treated as impartiality, whereas critics of the BBC would say, what you should be doing is weighing up the value and the quality of the knowledge and experience of each participant, and rather than playing them off against one another automatically just because they have opposing views, the BBC should make it clear that yes, these two people have opposing views, but actually one of them is informed more by their past knowledge and their past experience of an issue that the other person doesn't have. So if you're simply presenting a debate through the eyes of two people, but the experiences of those two people aren't equal, is that really impartiality? Well, I suppose it depends. It also depends on what the format is, doesn't it? Because if the format is, say, something like question time, say, or, or a sort of panel discussion, then it's perfectly legitimate to have a range of views, even if one of the views is wrong. I mean, you know, and the presenter then may, you know, or whoever's doing involved might say, well, hang on a minute, this and this and this. But, uh, you know, that is the, the nature of a kind of multi-headed discussion, if you like. That's different from, say, what I might do in my in a piece, say, for Newsnight, where I might say, some people believe this, and then I might say, but they're wrong because of this. And as long as I can evidence and say why that is, 
that's perfectly acceptable and perfectly within the rules. And I think that is what people want. Um, I think so often these things, it just depends on, you know, what the format is you're talking about. And it can be slightly sort of context specific. Um, but, you know, the BBC is founded, not Broadcast Media, is founded on the principle that we're here uh, representing the viewers and representing uh, the people who pay our wages. And what they want, I think, is for us to go out there and, uh, you know, find out what the facts are, tell them what the facts are, tell them that there can be different views about these things. And some people believe this and some people believe that. And sometimes, as I say, the truth can be a little bit mushy and a little bit grey. It can often be like that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the truth can be hard-edged as well as soft-edged. And when it's hard-edged, as long as we can say, um, you know, with confidence and with evidence as to why it's hard-edged, then we say it. And that's how it should be. I think I, I can predict that you'll give me a no common answer on this question, but I'll try anyway. GB News, um, do you think Andrew Neil and Simon McCoy regret leaving the BBC, heading over there? I have no idea. You'd have to ask. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously, on one level, Andrew Neil, Neil clearly has regrets about his involvement. He wouldn't have left. So, I mean, you know, it won't be. It's not exactly headline news for me to say to, to say that. But I mean, I, I just don't know beyond that. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, on one level, one always has to admire people for having a go and, and trying something. And, and that's that's to be admired. But, um, you know, uh, GB News is what GB News is. And people can. Uh, watch it if they want and if they don't want to watch it then don't watch it but i, I wouldn't be able to say anything about you know the motivations of people involved because i just don't know you have been um you've done some fantastic sort of online journalism as well as broadcast stuff um sort of stuff that's been specialist um in in, in it being shown online um we mentioned 2019 earlier during that campaign for the european elections which people might remember took place in may of that year the year that the brexit party was formed nigel farage was going around the country you were following him and his party around on that campaign um he is such a unique character he um brings up emotion in people on both sides to an extent that many others don't. Some people loathe him, some people love him. What was your experience of that ca- campaign, of following him? Um, and what's he like to interview? Uh, it was it was a really interesting um, period. It was a really interesting sort of uh, time to sort of follow him around. Because when we started to follow, I mean, the thing is, I mean, that the genesis of that was, I think I realised pretty quickly that once uh, Farage was getting back into the, into the, into the arena, that May's great advantage up to that point had been that there was nowhere else for either her supporters in the country or her MPs to go, you know, despite all of the kind of problems that she was having, there was nowhere else to go. And it seemed to me that as soon as, as soon as Farage was able to set up an opposing vehicle and assuming as I did that it would have some success because he is a formidable political operator with a, almost with a with a unique ability really in modern politics and a unique following i should say in modern politics um that that would then pose tremendous problems for her because there would be a as i say a sort of alternative vehicle for which she would then bleed support to which she would then bleed support um and so i just sort of i vaguely knew uh well i know reasonably well his sort of one of his primary political aides and i just said you know i'd love to follow you around for this for, the, for, for this period, you know, as you're getting going with all the rallies. And what was extraordinary about it was that it became clear very, very quickly, A, that it was going to be successful, and B, the complete, uh, the complete fury that there was in that part of the country um, about what was happening, 
you know, was so palpable. And also the kind of, I mean, there were sort of real sort of Trump, Trumpist kind of elements to it. The rallies had that sort of feel, you know, the media getting booed, the kind of, you know, sort of shouting, very sort of, it was very buoyant, you know, in one way or the other. It was a very kind of, um, a very sort of buoyant atmosphere. And what's that like being booed at a rally? Because that's sort of something that only American journalists have experienced over the past five years until then. Well, should I tell you what, my, completely honestly, should I tell you what like, my first thought was when it happened? I thought this is great because it's going to make great television. You know? Yeah, it'll like, go viral, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's going to be great for the package. I mean, you know, and this is a kind of, um, uh, this is, you know, this unfortunately, something is just, that is just kind of, I think often how journalists will react, particularly television journalists. I mean, it's a sad sort of thing. I mean, it's very sad. Being a journalist sometimes doesn't make you always a very nice person in some ways. So for example, like, you know, if I'm interviewing someone about a very difficult subject, on one level, and they start to cry. On one level, part the human part of me is like, this is terrible, I really feel for you. But on another level, there'll be a bit of me that says, this is going to be great because this is this, and not because you want them to cry, but just because you want that piece of television to express the depth and the profundity of the story. And if they cry or, or, they're, or they're angry or they're really happy, whatever it is, as long as it's a strong emotion, rather than just sitting there going, you know, in a kind of very bland way, it will convey to the audience how important it is. So in a way, to be honest, the first thing I thought was this is this is great, you know, because it's, it's going to be you know, powerful with the TV. But I suppose when I reflected on it, I mean, it is a, it is a peculiar experience. Um, but what I thought about it was, you know, it just shows the extent to which the you know, British democracy was buckling at the time. So many of the, you know, what Farage was gunning for there at the time wasn't so much just about European elections or about Brexit about the EU, it was about the failure of British democracy itself. And I have to say, what well, you know, when I was travelling around the country at that time, it just felt I was doing pieces, sort of equivalent pieces made with sort of a Remainer kind of equivalents. I just could never see how any legitimacy was going to be conferred on whatever settlement emerged. And I have to say, I do think it has been part, and it's a very rickety settlement in a lot of ways, but one has to give Johnson quite a bit of credit in a sense of what he managed to do was knit to re-knit together that coalition, that leave coalition, which looked like it was completely asunder, completely broken, and convey through the force of his election victory, managed to get enough remainers to basically accept, accept the outcome. And again, it's rickety and the generational profile of remain of remain voters and so on means that I think this this is a settlement which will come under more and more pressure over time and what we're seeing at the moment will add to it as well. But nonetheless Compared to where we were, I, at that time, the country felt so completely riven with division that I was um, amazed at the extent to which, in some ways, as I say, it is to Johnson's political credit that he managed to uh, extract any sort of settlement at all, however flimsy it might be. And Johnson managed to assemble that, reassemble that coalition um, in a way that, of course, his opposite side couldn't. And partly the reason he was able to do that was because of Dominic Cummings. Now, you also had a little run-in with him when you were at Sky, um, which did go a little bit viral on Twitter. Um, he was sort of heading home and you, you were asking him some questions as he walked along the street. Um, this was just the, the the withdrawal deal, the new one had not yet been agreed. So there were sort of all these wranglings about were we going to leave with no deal? Was Parliament going to stop them, stop the government? Was the government going to even abide by the law? And Dominic Cummings sort of flung all these dates back in your face and said, oh, you don't actually know the date. Like, you don't know what you're talking about and, and asking you time. questions. All right, OK, I'll, I won't interrupt uh, in follow up to this. 
Will the Prime Minister, on October the 17th, if he hasn't got a deal, be writing a letter to the European Council asking for an extension of Article 50, yes or no? You're confused about the dates. You don't even know the basics of the subject that you're asking about. All right, late October. In late October, the Prime Minister is supposed to be having to ask for an extension. Do you know what date the Benak talks about? It's supposed to be having to ask for an extension. Do you know what date the Benak talks about? The European Council on October the 17th. What was through your head during that encounter? Well, uh, well, what was going through my head is, you know, doorstepping is, uh, as we call it, you know, just like ambushing stump someone as they emerge from a um, from a from a whatever that is that they've been doing. I actually had just um, I'd actually just I've been waiting outside that bloody building for, for sort of hours, watching them all go in to have dinner in their sort of fine kind of in their in their frock coats and their black tie and velvet. Uh, and I just uh, popped to go and get something. It's been so long. I just popped to go and get a drink. <laughs> and of course, of course, he emerged. And I got a phone call from the producer. He's here. He's here. So I had to sort of peg it down Piccadilly. <laughs> So my first sort of thought was, well, I'm really out of breath. Um, but 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 doorstepping someone is a far, is a, is a difficult thing to do. Anyone who hasn't done it um, doesn't quite appreciate the kind of because the thing about it, how, the thing about it is you're sort of walking and you're walking at speed because usually the person's trying to get away, so they're walking at speed. You've got a sort of camera in front of you and you're having to keep an eye on where the camera is as much as you can so you don't collide. And you're having to try and sort of obviously sort of think of questions and sort of how, how you respond. And Cummings is obviously a particularly sort of difficult and uh, pugnacious character. So initially, we're just sort of, you know, chatting. And so you're sort of what I'm saying is you've got all these things going on in your mind. You're having to sort of calibrate as you're, as you're, as you're going through. And then, of course, yeah, he started to sort of attack me, saying uh, he sort of realised that sort of, he, he sort of decided to, this is what Cummings does, though. He sort of tries to find something that he can then sort of, parry back straight away because he initially said that uh, don't you think you've got haven't you got better things to be doing in the evening just saying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair point um, a lot of work. but he you know uh, and I can't yeah it was the, the date of the Ben Act and whatever and 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 but the thing is when you're in that moment you've got so much adrenaline running through your head I think I did know the date but it just kind of you just have that momentary kind of pause and it then he's found yeah. he opens it up um, but I thought but in a way when I sort of watched it back initially I thought oh god you know, what would that have been like? But when I watched it back, I actually, I, I thought, oh, this is great. This is great because all it was, and it's sort of hard to imagine now because Cummings has become so ubiquitous since. We've all seen the interviews he's done, you know, endless hour-long interviews, tweeting constantly. But at the time, he remained a deeply kind of shady figure. He was very secretive. Very secretive and enigmatic. And very few people, I think, had even heard him speak. And I think what it was, and even if it, um, even if it made me look slightly foolish in that moment, I think what it, what it did, nonetheless, is that it revealed something about him. It showed what he was like. It showed his pugnacity. It showed, you know, that he could be a little odious sometimes, difficult. It showed that, you know, he had that kind of abrasive temperament and what he was like privately. And so actually, I was sort of, I actually thought, you know, we had a sort of good ding-dong about the Constitution and all that. So actually, I mean, I was, I was, I was sort of pretty pleased with it. I thought it was quite fun. I mean, as I say, those things are sort of weirdly adrenaline-inducing and and odd experiences because I mean they can react in different ways they can do usually there's two types either well three types one they sort of try and genuinely engage with you and end up having a sort of mini interview which is weird because you're like walking really quickly and it's kind of odd um they can be pugnacious like Cummings and you end up having a row which again has its own kind of perils or they can say nothing at all which is also quite common and then you're just sort of wondering following them you know pelting them with questions 
often the same question while they just totally blank you. <laughs> so, so as so often in so many ways, and people don't realize this often about interviewing journalism, people think the interviewer has all the power. They don't. The interviewer has very little power, actually. You know, the power very much often rests in the interviewee and how they respond. Uh, and, you know, you've just got to try and think how you often in split second decisions, how you respond to that. Um, and, and when you're doorstepping in a way that is, as I say, quite adrenaline fuel. But it's great fun. It's very interesting. I haven't really been able to do it at all during COVID because mm. you have to keep. So, um, so I've probably got rusty, but uh, never mind. Yeah, it must have been a very, very surreal experience. Lewis, you've been extremely generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Eve, both Eve, I know she can't be here, but Eve and I really, really appreciate it. You've interrupted a, a busy schedule to talk to us. Just before we finish, um, just your final thoughts on, we've been reflecting on the last decade, essentially, of politics and the media in this country. Where do you think we go in the next decade or the next 15 years? Do we think climate is going to be dominating the agenda? The Scottish independence? Um, what is going to be the huge thing? I know you said that you find it annoying when um, journalists say they're not going to make predictions. So where, where do you see us going? Yeah, you, you're going to make me be glib and the cliche about, you know, not saying <laughs> predictions. Um, I, I genuinely, though, I think it is, I mean, it is just extremely difficult to release. I mean, you're talking about 10 to 15 years. I mean, generally, do we really know what's going to happen in the next 10 weeks? Um, I, you know, I could sit here and give you what I think are sort of broad kind of, you know, big geopolitical things about China and American-China competition, about Britain having to find its way outside of the EU and all that. I, and I could do that. But I think in a way, genuinely, I think um, it is a story who once said, you know, people always keep asking me about the future. And I, I've got enough to deal with you know, thinking about the past. Genuinely, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about uh, writing another book at the moment, sort of trying to think about the last five or six years and kind of, you know, what happened in Britain in that time and what, you know, the sort of breakdown that's happened in Britain um, in terms of the, its different institutions and why it was that so much seemed to come to a head in the, in the nation state of Britain at that time. And that is sort of very, very difficult to understand. You know, it's very difficult to understand the recent past. And that's, in a way, I'm almost more interested in trying to think about that. You know, so much has occurred and is still occurring uh, now in the last sort of five to 10 years in Britain. Like, that is genuinely what I'm sort of trying to turn my head to. And I think insofar as I can kind of get to those answers and get beyond the, just the sort of day-to-day -day kind of this happened, this happened, and then this happened, it will probably help elucidate and inform us of what's going to happen. But genuinely, I mean, I think that, uh, it, 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 you know, we've got quite enough to deal with and to try, as I say, analysing the recent past without trying to get too far deeply into the future um but I, I one thing i would say is that i'm sure that politics is only going to is going to as we go back to the start, start of the conversation that we had which is to say that lots of people keep trying to put natural kind of uh full stops on politics saying ah now it's going to be less interesting or ah now it's going to go back to normal there is no normal there's no normal the not old normal insofar as it ever exists i mean there was never even a normal when people say normal what do they mean i mean do they mean the 90s okay the 90s was this brief sort of in some ways, oasis of sort of calm. But what do you mean? You mean the 80s? Oh, that wasn't very calm, was it? You mean the 70s? That wasn't very calm. The 60s? The 50s? The 40s? The 30s? I mean, seriously, I mean, when are you going, are you going back to the truth is that human life and political life is often tumultuous, deeply tumultuous. Um, and, you know, that is kind of the, the hallmark of, of, of uh, human political cultural life. And I'm sure that that will maintain and probably only become more as a trend becomes stronger over time and on that philosophical note Lewis Goodall <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Meridian podcast we really appreciate it